Let's pray as we turn to God's Word. Our Father, we pray that you would speak to us with clarity from this uh, very important New Testament letter, and we pray that we will see the relevance of it to us as a church and to heed what it says in the way that we live. For Jesus' sake, uh, amen. Now, this evening, we begin a series on to Timothy. The plan is to work through the letter in eight talks because there is a lot of important stuff for us to learn. But let's never forget that it is a short letter, just over two pages in our Bibles. So can I encourage us uh, through this series on Sunday nights, during the week perhaps, to read the letter as a whole. Better still, to read it out loud or to listen to it being read. That will help you as we look at the details. Now, 1 and 2 Timothy are key letters in the New Testament. They are written at the end of the apostolic era. And 2 Timothy is the last recorded letter of the Apostle Paul. In the letter, Paul is clear that he is close to the end of his earthly life. Now, the apostles, people like Paul and Peter, had a specific God-given role in establishing the early church. And their principal job or role was to speak Jesus' words. Jesus inspired them to speak and to write down his words for the church. And the fruit of their work is the New Testament Scriptures. And that's what we mean when we say in a creed that we are an apostolic church. That simply means that we are a church under the authority of the apostles' words. And because their words are Jesus' words, we are a church under the authority of Jesus. Now, what do I mean when I say that these letters, 1 and 2 Timothy, are key letters? Not that they are more inspired than other letters or other books in the Bible. They are key in that they describe a church, and by that I mean a local church like Chalmers. They describe a church that is fit for purpose. That's 1 Timothy. And they describe church leaders that are fit for purpose. That's uh, 2 Timothy. And they're a little bit like spiritual health checks for a church and for church leaders. And so if you want to know what a church should be like in areas like what it should teach and how it should be led then 1 Timothy is your key go-to book in the Bible. And if you want to know what church leaders should be like, what they are to do, and by implication what they are not to do, and how they are to live, then 2 Timothy is the go-to book. Now, two years ago, we studied 1 Timothy as our motto series, and uh, we preached the letter on Sundays and studied it in small groups. That's what we mean by motto series. 
the whole church family focused on one Timothy for one term. And there is no doubt, looking back, in the life and development of Chalmers, it proved to be a very important book, 1 Timothy. And my sense is, and prayer is, that 2 Timothy will prove to be equally important for us as a church. So 1 and 2 Timothy are key letters. 1 Timothy, a church fit for purpose. 2 Timothy, church leaders fit for purpose. Now, let me sketch out a bit of background to the letter, introducing us to the main characters. The Apostle Paul is the author of the letter. The Apostle Paul loved the churches he had an association with, whether in Corinth or Colossae or Philippi or Thessalonica or Rome. But if there was one church that Paul had a deep heart affection for, and one leader of a church that he had a deep heart affection for, it would be the church in Ephesus and Timothy, its leader. Paul had spent two years in Ephesus, somewhere around 54 and 55 AD, establishing the church. We read about that in Acts chapter 19. And uh, the church in Ephesus that Paul was uh, at the heart of in establishing over these two years was right at the heart of a secular, worldly city full of supernatural, evil, demonic, pagan culture, a living, vital, real church where there had been opposition, difficulties, and suffering, but real progress, real spiritual fruitfulness. And about a year after Paul left uh, Ephesus, he summoned the Ephesian elders to come to him at a place called Miletus. And what is referred to as his farewell address to the Ephesian elders is recorded in Acts chapter uh, 20. Now, why don't we just flip back there to page 929. Just gives us a good background to these uh, letters. This is Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian elders about a year after he had spent two years with them on the ground in Ephesus, and it's a powerful and moving appeal to them, to the elders, to the leaders of the church in Ephesus, to be willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel and to guard and preserve it against false teaching. And Paul says something really tough in this farewell address, that false teaching will come from within the church at Ephesus. Now, a week past Thursday at Sam's ordination, this was the passage that was read and preached. And it will do us no harm to read a bit of it again. Let me just read a few verses from this farewell address. Acts 20, verse uh, 18. When they came to him, the elders from Ephesus, Paul said to them, you yourself know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set food in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable 
and teaching you in public and from house to house. Let's go on to verse 24. I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Verse 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers or elders or leaders to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves. It's pretty striking that, isn't it? Will arise men speaking twisted things. Remember to be alert. And then the very end, verse 36, when they had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him. It is deeply emotional, but it's not sentimental. Being sorrowful because of what he had said, and that they would not see his face again. Now, that is a powerful and moving appeal to the elders of the church in Ephesus. And about five years later, Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus the letter we know as Ephesians. And by that time, Paul was not a free man. He writes Ephesians as a prisoner. The first lengthy period of Paul's imprisonment recorded at the end of the book of Acts. And when he writes Ephesians to the church in Ephesus, there's no major error or conflict or misunderstanding that prompts him to write the letter. He simply wants to advance their Christian insight and understanding, their knowledge of God's purposes, their unity, their maturity. And we can infer from that that when he wrote Ephesians to the church in Ephesus, it was strong, still, and we know that uh, after that, Paul was released and continued his ministry. It's hard to pin down exactly where he went and when because it's the period after Luke finishes his uh, book that we know as Acts. What we do know is that at some point, he left Timothy in Ephesus to deal with false teaching in the church that had begun to creep in to that church. And then Paul wrote to Timothy and the church in Ephesus, the letter we know as 1 Timothy, a date of around 65 AD, maybe 10 years after the church in Ephesus had started. Just to turn to the beginning of 1 Timothy, page 991. Let's just read the first three verses. Page 991, the First letter to Timothy, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child of the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. 
As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And then finally, one or perhaps two years later, Paul writes to Timothy again, the letter we know as to Timothy. And once again, Paul was a prisoner in Rome. This time, though, his final imprisonment before his martyrdom in the late 60s AD. And 2 Timothy is the last recorded letter of the Apostle Paul. Both letters, 1 and 2 Timothy, written by Paul to Timothy as the leader of the church in Ephesus. But whereas the focus of 1 Timothy is on the church, 2 Timothy is more focused, written to Timothy as the leader of the church about his uh, leadership. Now, why am I doing all this? To fill in the background, let me encourage you that none of that background is outside of the Bible. It's not that we've gone to some book on the shelf, what's the background to these letters? It's all in Acts, it's all in the letters, and you just piece together and you see this is real. It's a church that's close to Paul's heart. Ten years on, he writes these letters. And Timothy is close to his heart. What do we know of Timothy? Well, lots. He was Paul's number one trusted ministry colleague. Traveled extensively with the apostle. This is what he said of Timothy in his letter to the Philippians. I have no one like Timothy. You know his worth. How As a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. And Paul trusted Timothy with some of the toughest jobs in ministry. He sent him, for example, as his envoy to Corinth, the toughest church to sort out that Paul had founded. Here's what he writes in his first letter to the Corinthians. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Timothy is a strong and trusted leader. Timothy is a man of steel and courage. You would need courage to be sent to sort out Corinth. It's not a job I would have liked or could do. And of course, Paul trusted Timothy with this church in Ephesus, this church close to Paul's heart, a church loved by Paul, and a leader, Timothy, loved by Paul, his son in the faith. Now, that's the back story. Now, let's get a flavor of 2 Timothy by reading the beginning and uh, the end. New Testament letters are a little bit like uh, Agatha Christie whodunit novels. You save yourself a lot of bother if you read the last page first. So we're going to do that, the beginning and the end. You might think that's a bit strange. Maybe it is, but we're going to do it anyway. It's very interesting. If you look at the beginning and the end and you build the flavor of the... Remember, this is a real letter written to a real leader of a real church. Paul, verse 1, 
an apostle of Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ, to Timothy, my beloved child, Timothy, perhaps in his late 30s, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day, as I remember your tears, perhaps tears of parting, when Paul left Timothy in Ephesus, said, you're going to stay there and sort out that false teaching, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Now that's the beginning of the letter, full of evident affection. Let's turn to the end, chapter 4, verse 6 and following. For, Paul's writing of himself, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure, this is Paul, has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth it is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul is speaking about his imminent death and reflecting on his ministry. And then some very personal real, human words that you may not associate with a great apostle, do your best to come to me soon. Verse 11, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you just so I can remind him that he was, after all, really useful to me in my ministry. When you come, verse 13, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, the books, above all, the these are wonderful, wonderfully realistic, real bits in letters that make you realize this is a real, it's not a theological textbook, it's a letter. And the letter goes on to its end. This is the apostle at the end of his life who wants to see Timothy and other trusted colleagues before he dies. It is real, it is personal, it is moving. Now, if there is a danger in reading this letter to Timothy, that danger would be sentimentality. After all, it is moving stuff. It is the apostle at the end of his life writing to his son in the faith. And it is full of emotion, affection, tears, and appeal. The letter is emotional, it is powerfully emotional, but there is not a single letter, full stop or anything in that letter, that is sentimental. And there is a big difference. For this letter, full of emotion and full of affection, has teeth or edge or sharpness or point, or purpose. Let me show you that into Timothy. Now, a moment ago, we read chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, and then 4, 6 to 22. These are the bookends, the brackets. Let's come inside the bookends and the brackets and read the few verses after and before. First, the beginning. Go back there. Let's read uh, verses uh, 5 through 8. In fact, we'll read in from verse 4. 
this affectionate beginning, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled by joy. Verse 5, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother uh, Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, because of that genuine faith, I remind you, Timothy, to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has given us a spirit not of fear, but of love and of self-control. Therefore, Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering. You see the edge? The suggestion is that Timothy is not doing what he should be doing, or at least is in danger of losing heart. Why else would Paul say, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God? Is the flame flickering? Or is just Paul saying, look, it, it might in the future. Don't presume. It might be that Timothy is tempted, at least, to be ashamed of the gospel and of Paul. Has he lost heart? Has he lost a willingness to share in suffering for the sake of the gospel? We don't know for sure what state of mind Timothy is in. I think it's unlikely Paul writes to him to rescue him because he has lost it as a leader. That is unlikely. It's far too much in the letter about telling him what to do if that's the case. What we can say, though, and should say, is that a strong leader like Timothy, and there are no stronger leaders in the New Testament than Timothy, is not immune from discouragement and difficulties, taking him down, causing him to lose heart, even to be seduced by false teaching that leads to a slightly easier life as a Christian leader. Timothy is not immune, and no Christian leader is. Now turn to the end of the letter. Let's come inside the bracket this time, the other end. Let's read from the beginning of chapter 4. Um, I said to you between Sundays to read the whole letter. In fact, we're just about doing it tonight. But it's good, I think, to get us into the flavor of it by, to, by simply reading it. Chapter 4, the beginning of 4, is the culmination of the letter. These very powerful words, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming. When people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And here we pick up the bit we read a minute ago, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering. The time has come from my departure. I have fought the fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And the letter is crying out with a question, will you? Will you? See the logic, the flow. Let me just highlight some phrases. I charge you, chapter 4, verse 1. 
Chapter 4, verse 5, as for you. Chapter 4, verse 6, for I am. Chapter 4, verse 7, I have fought. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Timothy, will you? Will you be sober-minded? What does that mean? Well, I think it means something like this. Will you keep your head when everybody else is losing theirs, running this way and that, chasing after this, that, and the next latest thing? Will you endure suffering? Will you do the work of an evangelist? Will you fulfill your ministry? That means accomplish or complete your ministry. You started well, Timothy. Will you keep going to the end? Will you do what you have been called to do, set apart to do? It's one thing setting apart a Christian leader. It's quite another, encouraging them to go to the end. Now, this letter has teeth, as we'll see. Now, what's the relevance for us as a church? Here's a good question that I would just lay on the table. It's worth asking. What is the relevance of a letter about church leadership to all of us? Isn't it better studied at a conference for ministers rather than on Sundays in a church. Well, that's what it has been historically, I guess, and to the loss of the church. Why is it relevant to all of us? Here are some reasons. Many more will emerge. Number one, leaders in a church are not just ministers. They are elders and small group leaders and lots of other people too. For leaders, this letter in our church will be an encouragement, a warning, or a call to turn back. For us all, what is it that we should look for in our Christian leaders? And what should we be looking for them to do and not to do? Now, I can't preach, and Roger can't preach sermons from silence in this letter. But for example, there's not a single reference in this letter to A, B, C, D, E, F, G that ministers, church leaders, spend their time doing and congregations probably want them to do. It's quite striking to be steely about what the role of the church leader actually is. So what is it that we are looking for our church leaders to do? Number four, for us all, we will learn what Christian leadership is like and what we should be praying for our leaders. Number five, and this will come home in moving ways, I think, for us. Why is it that Christian leaders crack and fall apart? This letter will teach us why Christian leadership is hard because in every paragraph of this letter there is a call to the Christian leader to suffer for the sake of the gospel. We will learn, number six, that leaders shape a congregation and that a congregation shapes their leaders. We will learn whether or not we are training future leaders in a way that renders them fit for purpose. If you are looking for a church, say you move after university, 
What should you be looking for in a leader of a church or the leadership of the church? And then we'll see in this letter that it's not just about Christian leaders. All Christians are called to be fit for purpose. Jesus Christ is the model. The apostles are modeled on Jesus. Christian leaders are modeled on the apostles and modeled on Jesus. Every single Christian is called to take up their cross and to suffer for the sake of the gospel. That is real ministry, real Christian life, real church. Now, last seven minutes. I've got Sam's. I was very impressed with Anna and Davy speaking from their phones. Um, Sam's clock is ticking unreasonably uh, fast. Seven minutes and we're done. Just to get us into the text of these first few verses. From Paul to Timothy, the first two verses, let's leave that. And then verses three to five uh, that are just very powerful words of reassurance. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Timothy, I thank the Lord for you. Now, that's a good thing to say and to pray to God for a Christian leader that has been faithful to their responsibilities. I thank the Lord for you. Verse 4, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Timothy, let me paraphrase, I love you in the Lord and long to see you. Verse 5, like Anna and Esther, Timothy had a great Christian heritage. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Timothy, you have a godly heritage. And Timothy, I want you to know that I know that your faith is the genuine article your faith is real, Timothy. And verse 6, you're gifted. God has gifted you to be a leader, to be a teacher, to be a pastor. God has given you steel to say no to error and yes to truth. God has given you grace and love. And then the challenge Verses 6 and 7, for this reason, because of all that you have been given and all that God has done in you and all that stuff from your mom and your granny and that person that read the Bible with you and that person that prayed for you, all that stuff, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. That's a reference to Timothy's ordination. It's the kind of thing I might write to Sam in, in 10 years' time. All that heritage. Sam spoke of his parents last Thursday. All that heritage. That day when you were set apart. Or the elders in Chammers. I was asking them to recall last elders' meeting what they promised at their ordination. 
or the small group leader, remember that time that you were asked to lead that group of people? I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. Let me paraphrase that. Do what you should be doing. Get back to the job you were given to do. Get back to teaching the Bible faithfully. We'll see that later in the letter. Get back to saying to your small group, that's wrong, and here's why. That's right, and here's why. Get back to that. And God has given you power, verse 7. Verse 7, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. What's the power for? It's not for some kind of special ministry. It's just power to keep going for another week. Just power to keep going. Let me finish by nailing a classic misreading. Timothy was not weak or especially timid. You know, timid Timothy. Some translations have God did not give us a spirit of timidity. Timothy, the envoy to the Corinthian church. Timothy, the companion of the apostle. The one who Paul said, there is no one like him. Timothy is not weak. Even though he had a weak tummy. One Timothy. Remember that bit in one Timothy and he was given wine for his tummy? As one teetotally commentator a hundred years ago said, for external application. I know a lot of ministers, here's one, with all the stresses and strains of ministry that have dodgy tummies. That's just normal. It's just normal. Timothy is not timid, this great leader who is potentially at risk. He is normal. He's normal. And one of the really important things we will learn in studying this letter is that those in this church who are leaders, and there are many of them, are normal and not immune. None of us are immune, whether leaders or new Christians, from opting for a spin on the gospel and a spin on the Christian life that takes out of our life what is all over this letter and all over the living real church of Christ that is a willingness to live a costly life to suffer for the sake of the gospel. And we would be foolish to suggest that that is not attractive or easy. So God willing, we will enjoy and study this letter with fresh eyes as to what Christian leadership and Christian life is like. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that over these coming weeks as we study this letter, we will be realistic about what Christian leadership is like and indeed what the Christian life is like for us all. It is a great letter to teach us what authentic Christian living looks like. And Lord Jesus, we want to be real. We want to be authentic. We want to be fit for purpose. 
But we also want to be real with each other, that it's not easy and we are not immune from falling. So help us, Lord, to learn together that we might keep each other going and spur each other on. And thank you, as we have sung again and again tonight, that it's not ever first or last down to us, but down to you and your grace and your strength that holds us fast. For Jesus' sake, amen.